Welcome to the Decipher podcast. In this episode, David Banks of Hill Dickinson talks to us about insolvency with an introduction from Decipher's founder and CEO, Paul Gibbons. David takes us through how insolvency provisions are drafted in construction contracts, what the current trends are in insolvency, and takes a look at the warning signs. Some research from Statista Research Department published on the 6th of April of this year suggested that insolvencies in the construction sector of Great Britain soared in 2022 to over 4,332 cases. This was up from 2,733 cases in 21 and up again from 2,175 cases in 2020. Some further research from the Reg Flag Alert, which was published in January 23, suggests that the UK construction sector is facing a challenging year this year with over 6,000 expected company insolvencies with 300 million in debt and this is expected to increase to 1 billion in 2024. And so with unpaid bills putting pressure on staffing and supply chain with a legacy from COVID alongside current interest and inflation rate pressures, things could only get worse but hopefully they will get better in due time. So David Banks, uh, David has been a legal director within the National Construction and Engineering team at Hill Dickinson since 2021 and he's worked his way up from associate in 2017. David now leads the Manchester arm of the construction team. David prides himself on being a versatile lawyer acting in both transactional and contentious matters across the industry for developers, contractors, subcontractors, consultants and funders. And he specialises in dispute avoidance and resolution regarding payment issues, defects and general contract management. He has a keen interest in development finance matters, as well as adjudication enforcement, and in particular adjudication enforcement when a party is insolvent. So a key person to have on today's chat. So David, over to you, please. Thank you. So thank you again, Paul, for your warm words just there. As Paul mentioned, I'm David Banks from the, from the Manchester branch of, of Hill Dickinson. I work across contentious and non-contentious matters. And I feel that that gives me a, in a useful position to provide an insight as to how insolvency provisions are drafted into construction contracts and also what happens as and when uh, things go wrong, as, as they often tend to. Insolvency is obviously a, a very wide topic, so I'm going to jump around a little bit today between a few market trends, which let's say Paul just stole my, stole my thunder a little bit there with some of the stats he's provided, so hopefully they align with what Paul said. Some insolvency warning signs, some contractual options in, in construction agreements, and then also finally to look at the link between insolvency and, um, and adjudication. I'm going to try to strike a balance between looking at matters from the perspective of both the insolvent company as well as that of those in in contract with the um, with the said company. Starting with some um, some market trends. Each morning I get uh, an update from the construction inquirer via email at uh, about nine o'clock each morning. So I'll be getting that just now, uh, and unfortunately that often talks of further financial fatalities. Uh, Clement Dickens, Emmy, and Henley have all fallen to insolvency processes over the, over the course of the past week or so. Tolent was obviously a big one early this year. It doesn't make for happy reading, obviously, but it's important to know what's going on in the industry and also to remain realistic about it, in my view. Some possible reasons for that, and I, I describe them as the uh, as the perfect storm. I think it's safe to say a fair things have, a few things have happened over the past few years, which are relatively well rehearsed and set out on that slide. In an industry that's already susceptible to insolvency, that's especially the case, bearing in mind those factors. So as Paul mentioned, the red flag alert, which is the Begbie's insolvency tool, provides us with more good news, unfortunately, which is that it anticipates 6,000 construction insolvencies in 2023. That situation is certainly not, not a healthy outlook. 
I've also got some further analysis from Professor Noble Francis, who is the economics director at the, the CPA, the Construction Products Association. And he says that the 291 construction firms in the UK went out of business in January 2023. And the positive is that that's 19.4% lower than the previous month and 8.5% lower than a year ago, according to the latest data from the government's insolvency service. So taking that as a positive, there has been a, there has been something of a decline. It's also important to note, however, that that's only one data point and insolvencies often fall during the uh, during the winter period. It's too early to see whether that's the start of a downward trend. Professor Francis also says that in the year to January 2023, and I think again, Paul mentioned this stat, 4,135 construction firms went out of business which is slightly lower than the 4,162 that fell in the year to December, which coincidentally was the highest number of construction insolvencies since the financial crisis over 10 years ago. 58% of the firms that went out of business were specialist contractors, considered likely to be smaller firms on fixed price contracts signed before price rises in, or the significant price rises in uh, in materials costs. To add to that, there was also the rising labour costs, rising PI insurance market, and amongst other external factors. January 2023 saw the number of specialist contractors that went under fall by 22.2% compared with the previous month, December, and that was 13.6% lower than the previous year. Main building contractors counted for 37% of those insolvencies in January, and that was 17.3% lower than in the previous December, but 4.8% higher than the previous year. Finally, on stats, uh, only 5% of the firms that went out of business were civils firms compared with 6% in the previous month, which would suggest that civils firms are less impacted and tend to be less impacted in any event due to strong infrastructure activity, essentially. I think that's probably also a to public sector and regulated sector clients are likely to be have more of an understanding of, of cost inflation issues and being less stringent essentially on enforcing fixed price contracts. I'm going to move on to some practical points now, um, leaving the stats aside and, and what I think the issues are to look out for in terms of possible indicators of, of financial difficulties and the so um, the things I'd look for, such as low productivity, if, you, if you've got a supplier who is struggling to secure labour or materials, failure to pay its own suppliers, company's house is something that, that can be, you know, that can be accessed by anyone and um, that can be monitored in terms of late filing of accounts and extended reporting periods and then there's the more obvious issues such as court proceedings being commenced by potential creditors if you sign up to ce file which is the court's filing system it's, it's possible to check that for cases involving said supplier it's perhaps um, sensible to do that at the outset of, of, of placing an order. I think the last point I've mentioned there, the low pricing and margin issue, um, was something I added quite late following some advice that I gave quite recently, where I had a new, I was approached by a new contractor client who'd allowed a, a fairly slim margin of 4 to 5% profit on a relatively low, low price job. And that was on a fixed price contract in, in which the contractor had taken on all the risk. And I should say that, that was done before they approached me to have a look at the contract. And you can probably guess what followed. The contractor hadn't anticipated to being issues with ground conditions and approached me asking if he was able to vary the contract at that point. The answer to that was he, he was unable to do so, unfortunately. So I think that the message there is that risk allocation is important from both perspectives as it will ultimately drive profit on the contract. The message is to check contracts, check pricing, and from uh, from an employer's perspective, also to check whether a, a supplier can actually can carry that risk if it's your organisation that's trying to pass on that risk. So notwithstanding insolvency in the industry remains inevitable, I think as an initial step from both perspectives, really, I would suggest that it's preferable to begin with a constructive dialogue with a view to securing 
um, a form of commitment in relation to any outstanding debt. That might be by way of a form of security, perhaps a, a repayment plan on the basis that something over a long period of time is certainly better than, uh, than pennies in the pound. Is a potential for a new work opportunity to be referred or even a guarantee from a director or a group company? My suggestion would be that that be followed up in writing and a record kept of, of, of any such communications as well. Second point, I think it's important to monitor credit throughout the course of a project and not just the due diligence stage and, and certainly not to extend credit where there's no obligation to do so. Working on the basis that those first two steps haven't worked, I think it's, it's important to consider seeking advice in relation to, to the issue that you may be having. That serves the purpose of improving a negotiation position on repayment or also maybe potentially looking at recovery via, via litigation. I think revisiting your contractual options and considering whether you have existing security, which I'll, I'll move on to in more detail, but that's also an important factor to bear in mind. I think lastly, consider adjudication as a means of a potentially faster recovery, adjudication obviously being largely specific to the construction industry and with cash flow in mind. Again, adjudication is something I'm going to look at later on in terms of its specific relationship with insolvency, but it's again an important and a crucial means of recovery in the industry. An important factor obviously to bear in mind with those last two points is, is one of commerciality. And I think it's important to keep in mind whether the insolvent company actually has the assets to justify actually spending the money and getting to that point. So I'm going to look at payment termination and then security. So starting with payment, the usual rule, regardless of whether or not a company is, is engaged in the insolvency process, is that if there is a, a notified sum following a valid application for payment in a construction contract, then that sum becomes payable. That is unless, of course, there's a valid payment notice or a pay less notice for a um, for a lesser amount. Important to be mindful of, of pay when paid clauses, which fall foul of the Construction Act, and, and will not, but certainly not always, if they are assessed to be a pay when paid clause, be enforced by the courts. I'll touch upon that issue further with uh, with with some case law in terms of whether you still need a pay less notice if the um, if you have if you're dealing with an insolvent party. I think my advice would be it's always important to be cautious in that respect, and I'd always therefore advocate issuing a notice to prevent the the, the possibility of a, of a costly smash and grab adjudication from the perspective of a paying party, paying party at least. As promised, some case law. The William Hare and Shepherd construction case was actually a 2010 case, but it remains very relevant to today's topic. Um, the case concerned a pay when paid clause, which I, I mentioned on my previous slide, and that clause sought to enable Shepherd to withhold payment from its subcontractors in the event of the insolvency of Trinity Wakefield, who were Shepherd's employer at the time. How were the one of the subcontractors in that case? An issue arose because the contractual definition of insolvency in that case was by, by way of reference to the insolvency procedures in the uh, in the Insolvency Act of 1986, which failed to take account of the amendments to the administration regime which of course enabled a company to enter insolvency other than via a court order. And that's exactly what happened here. Trinity entered administration without a court order and the court was asked whether Shepherd had to pay its subbies. Shepherd sought to argue that the administration of Trinity triggered the pay when pay clause. The Court of Appeal in that matter found that the clause was ineffective as its reference to the making of an administration order and did not cover out of court administration. The outcome of that matter was that Shepherd had to pay her just less than the, the, the million pounds in, uh, in fees. The wider implication of that matter, of course, is that there would have been other subcontractors of Shepherd, no doubt on similar terms, and these other supply chain members. Essentially, Shepherd, Shepherd would have had to cough up in those circumstances as well. Turning to um, suspension rights, which are also important and have a role to play in insolvency scenarios. So what happens if you're not paid as a contractor? The answer to that is, is, is quite simply that you're entitled to suspend your works by way of the, um, the Construction Act, if you're able to establish that uh, there's a notified sum payable 
and it hasn't been paid by your uh, by, by the paying party. The various forms of, of standard form contracts mentioned on my slide there, JCT, Fiddich and, uh, and NEC, all also allow the employer to suspend works in certain scenarios. And this is one issue to be aware of, I think, that of suspension, even if it's only used sparingly, that in the exercising of a, of a statutory or contractual right of suspension of works with a view to potentially waiting out inflation or uh, costs or supply chain disruption, it's essentially an option as a stopgap measure, though I appreciate that the time is always critical on projects. So just continuing with uh, contractual and, and, and statutory suspension rights, my view is that the right to suspend can provide uh, an adequate mechanism for exit, for, for assisting with it as, as a temporary form of relief, but it may not be of assistance in dealing with medium to long-term economic issues that arise from, uh, from insolvency. I think it's, it's necessary to, um, to establish a careful balancing exercise in terms of what, what's needed to be undertaken if a, if a suspension actually offers a true commercial benefit overall. And so I think it's important to be aware of the right to suspend in the event that insolvency is encountered. I think above all, it winds up the right to terminate the contract, which may unfortunately become inevitable. Again, I'll, I'll move on to that shortly. Both the JCT and the NEC give the contractual right to terminate following insolvency. So the JCT gives a right to terminate for, for, for inadequate performance, subject to, uh, to notice having been provided. That's not necessarily insolvency in itself. If you've got an insolvent party, then the likelihood is that they're not going to be performing to the uh, to the adequate um, to the adequate to the required standard. Should I say? There's of course the, uh, the the fact as well that insolvency of either party suspends a contractor's obligations to perform. That's different to termination. Though you should note some practical points as well. Following termination uh, for contractor insolvency, to, to, to consider things like security over site materials and removal or, or in some cases not of the site establishment, potential assignment of supply contracts, and a further practical issue to certainly be aware of as an employer dealing with an insolvent party, it's important to finalize your account following making good in order that any money due can be recovered potentially from the, uh, by way of contacting the, the insolvency practitioner. So the NEC position differs slightly. Again, there's a right to terminate for inadequate performance subject to the project manager confirming that that default is, is ongoing after the issuing of the relevant notices. Each party is able to notify the other and the project manager who then issues the termination certificate. And as with the previous slide, some, some practical issues arising following termination for contractor insolvency is the, those of site materials and removal of equipment. And again, potentially consider the assignment of supply contracts. And again, there's an accounting process to be carried out at the end of that um, of that process. Any recoveries can be made. Looking at some of the options by way of security against insolvency. So I mentioned a bond on my slide just there, which isn't overly helpful in uh, given the move away from on-demand bonds and the, uh, and, and the cost of the same. There's also the need to uh, to ascertain fees, which is uh, or to ascertain money's due, which isn't always possible at the point of insolvency, and also there's, there's inevitably some delay, which certainly isn't helpful in terms of not only cash flow but also in terms of uh, the, the crucial timing of the project. Also worth considering, I think, whether there is the option of having the relevant contract novated to a group company, if that is an option. Of course, requires insolvency to be the insolvent company to be part of a wider group. But this was an issue that a colleague of mine had recently in which uh, there was an agreement with the IP that those contracts could be novated and, and the works continue accordingly. Some other issues in terms of um, security arising under both the, um, the JCT and the NEC. And security and site materials are always going to be an issue in an insolvency situation. Uh, it's, it's also a key issue that I encounter as to when title actually passes under the various forms of contract. 
I think once the power given that sentence, it's important to demonstrate um, the passage of that title by clearly indicating on things like when interim payments are made, what goods have been paid for, especially if those goods are not incorporated into the works already, it makes it much more difficult to, uh, to, 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 to contest that title hasn't passed if the um, if this is a paper trail showing that um, showing that's the case. And whilst I appreciate from uh, the, that, that that creates a bit of an administrative burden, it's certainly um, it's certainly a, a useful process when they when the claim reaches dispute stage. Vesting certificates also appear to be becoming more and more common in uh, certainly in my experience. And I again I'd fully advocate their use. Um, again, to uh, to avoid any doubt that title issues may cause. I'm going to finish with another case from earlier this year that looks at the link between adjudication and insolvency. And I think when Paul introduced me, he mentioned that this is an area that I've got a bit of an interest in, that those are words only a lawyer could get away with um, with saying. I worked with an IP um, on a matter with a company in administration with millions of pounds worth of, of money due a few years ago. And that, um, well, that collection of cases kept me busy for a couple of years. It also coincided with the decisions mentioned in Doyle and Bresco. So I became quite familiar with those judgments at the time. A key issue we faced on uh, on that matter was that of not the ability to adjudicate on behalf of, the, of an insolvent company, but the, the ability to actually enforce any positive decisions. The Ball case from early this year has now provided some uh, judicial guidance on that and answered the, well, to, to an extent answers the question of what you can do as a company in insolvency or what more, more to the point what an IP can do if faced with an adjudication or if you face or with an adjudication by an insolvent company. Now, the approach of the court has always been that there's an unfettered right to adjudicate, which supports the, um, the Section 108 of the Construction Act. Whether or not the decision will be enforced, as I just mentioned, is, is, is a separate issue. But that was the uh, the point that the court looked at in Ball. Ultimately, the, the, um, the Technology Construction Court in Newcastle declined to enforce the, um, the, the decision in favour of the insolvent company in Ball. But that, was, that largely went against the grain on, on, in terms of enforcement but it did so on a natural justice point rather than the insolvency point. Um, and take it, 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 the court essentially took the view the adjudicator had gone off on the frolic of his own in that matter. Um, however, it was, uh, and, and, and crucially for the purposes of today, the court did give some guidance on um, as to insolvency issues that, um, that arose in the matter, and, and, and judges often like to do that on important points of law. The second element before the, the judge, which is the important one, was an enforcement point on the basis of the uh, the administration. So it was established that the payment was due to Ball following administration, in short. Um, but the issue before the court was the, the security and how the um, the interim binding nature of adjudication tied in with the employer in that matter's um, uh, longer term right to, to come back if he had to, to challenge that decision. And the question before the court essentially was, is administration equivalent to liquidation like in the, the Bresco matter? And um, the court looked at an earlier decision, straw realizations in Shaftesbury House, which you considered to be still good law, but clarified it slightly. And what the court said is that it's not inevitable that an application for summary judgment will fail. And the same applies to administration. Basically, there's no hard and fast rule as to whether an adjudicator decision will be enforced if the, the, the claim accompanies insolvent. But it did reiterate that the insolvency regime has the edge over, over the, 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 the right to payment brought about by the Construction Act. The position of that company's administration in, in administration is now slightly clearer as a result of that um, of that judgment. Now, Ball in that matter, via its funder, I think it was Pythagoras involved again, as they often are, um, offered security. The adequacy of those of that security was considered in Ball. And what the IP and Pythagoras between them offered to do was to ring fence the payment that would be received from the employer. 
and, and then the funder would also provide some security to be, uh, to be set aside for the cost of the employer's litigation. The judge looked at the criteria set out in, in another matter, um, in another case called Meadowside, and decided that there was no benefit to the employer handing money over if it was, if it was essentially going to be ring-fenced. Therefore, it, it cast further doubt on whether solvent companies can actually have these decisions enforced. I think the, the message to take is that each one will be looked at on its own merits and will be largely dependent on what the IP or the funder is prepared to uh, is prepared to advance, and it's therefore important to think carefully about what security offers are made if you're working with or for an insolvent company. But that is um, that's the end of my talk. So thank you for listening, and I hope you found that interesting, if not too disheartening. And um, I think it's important to say we're not getting away from the current trend of insolvency anytime soon. So hopefully the practical points made today can uh, can be of some assistance if you find yourself in that sort of situation. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. A really good presentation, particularly around the legal aspects. And uh, it's fluid. You know, you've just mentioned there the cases and uh, it is is very fluid in this day and age. Thank you for what you've done there. Thank you for listening to the Decipher podcast. For more information, visit decipher-group.com.